to episode 92 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we journey back to the era of leg warmers, neon, and roller skating in our review of the new musical version of the 80s classic, Valley Girl. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. We have now survived the eighth week in social isolation, at least from my job. Uh, we have been work from home for, for over eight weeks now, and I think I'm starting to feel it a little bit more than I was before. I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it was the particular project that I've been on for the last three weeks that was even more so blurring the lines between work and not work and <laughs> your personal time, things like that. As I did put in a lot of hours for the past few weeks, and I was doing that less so in, in the weeks prior to that. But I'm feeling a little bit exhausted from the whole thing. I was holding up pretty well. And I, I still think I am, all things considered. But... Maybe it would also be nice if we were watching other films than the VOD releases we've been watching and we were getting the movies that were scheduled for theaters like Black Widow, like Promising Young Woman, like all the, you know, No Time to Die. We were supposed to watch No Time to Die like a month ago. It's crazy. It's crazy all the movies we've we been still, We still would be in the theater watching it too based on how long the uh, movie was, <laughs> I think, if if, it, if we had watched it a month ago. But uh, yeah, Scott, I, I certainly know about putting in a lot of hours. It's something I'm going to have to be doing over the next... Yeah. Uh, six weeks or so while I get ready for the uh, the bar exam. Right now I'm at like where I have to do like four and a half hours a day or something. But um, I am for now I'm taking Sundays off. Sundays are going to be my day off. But, you know, if, if it's setting me back too much, then I may have to, to change. But uh, we'll, we'll yeah. see how long it lasts. But I, I need this this day off to uh, to totally. keep me sane, I guess. Yeah. No, I don't don't blame you at all. It's very important to take days off. I mean, on my last project, I was working you know, full Sundays sometimes. So mm -hmm. I definitely value the importance of having at the very least Saturday uh, to, to, to recover, turn your brain off, et cetera, et cetera. And definitely for the bar exam, right? Like it's I feel like self-motivation there is even harder than, you know, in my job, I have someone telling me the things that I need to accomplish, or at least I have this work plan with the team, things like that, things to do. Whereas the bar, it's just like, it's this thing you have to do in a couple months that you have to be ready for. And it might yeah. change. It might be four months from now if, if they move it back because everything with coronavirus. So that would be really sucky just because it would throw off everyone's study plans. But yeah, you know, you just you just gotta keep your eyes on the prize and remember what what you what is at the end of the rainbow if you uh if you are you know go through this, if you endure this for the next couple months. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's true of everything about what's at the end of the rainbow if you decide to stay inside and socially isolate yourselves in general. For everyone out there sports uh, <laughs> yeah the live sports tennis is the back there's some live tennis matches that are there's back gonna now. Be, there's gonna be golf pretty soon i think and i was gonna well. say that there's a big isn't i think tiger woods and phil mickelson are doing some sort of charity uh -huh. match so then there's gonna be a legit pga tour tournament too but with just yeah. with no fans yeah and there are some talks about baseball but we'll see i don't think we're quite there yet yeah. and the nfl is moving forward as if nothing will be changed about their season next year so good luck with that fingers crossed 
All right, Scott. Well, as I mentioned today on the podcast, we are talking about the long-awaited remake of Valley Girl, the iconic 80s romance starring Nicolas Cage and Deborah Foreman. In director Rachel Lee Goldenberg's re-envisioned musical version of Valley Girl, we meet the adult version of Foreman's character from the original Julie Richmond, played here by Alicia Silverstone. When Julie's daughter Ruby, played by Camilla Marone, is going through boyfriend troubles that she thinks her mom would never understand, Julie decides to sit her daughter down and tell her the story of her whirlwind high school romance with a bad boy named Randy. And so we travel back to the 80s where Jessica Roth plays the like totally far out younger Julie and Josh Whitehouse is Randy. When Julie first meets Randy in a chance encounter on the beach, she instantly falls for him, even though she's in a relationship with popular jock Mickey, played by Logan Paul. Even though Julie and Randy are from very different backgrounds, they decide to try and make it work, despite pressure from Julie's friends and parents, played by Rob Hubel and Judy Greer. And along the way, of course, they sing along to some of the most iconic pop songs of the 80s, including We Got the Beat, Kids in America, and Take On Me. Scott, is this music-filled remake a cure for the quarantine blues, or does it fail to leave a totally tripendicular impression? Yeah, you know, Scott, we were talking about what movie we wanted to do this week, last week, and I said, you know what? Quarantine time is the perfect time to watch a musical like this, a little upbeat vibe, especially one that's kind of centered around the 80s, where there is very upbeat music to have your you know set your jukebox music jukebox musical to and i was certainly hopeful that this would be the tripendicular cure for or whatever you said <laughs> and honestly scott i this was not the cure for quarantine on it i think at one point during the movie i had forgotten that i wasn't watching this on netflix ultimately i think this is a very very average film it's we talked about just before we started recording about whether this would be a straight whether this should have been a straight-to-VOD release regardless of quarantine. And I think that it like probably should be, which is a shame because I really like Jessica Roth, but just, like, I don't think any... Like, there isn't really much else in the terms of the cast that this movie has going for it. I mean, I just did not get on board with many of these characters. I don't know why they just couldn't shell out the extra money to have Deborah Foreman come back and play the older version of Julie Richmond. I'm just, like, scratching my head why that wasn't... Because yeah, one of the... I really have some thoughts on that. Okay, about yeah. why Alicia Silverstone was chosen, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, do you really? I'm, we can get into that, but I just was scratching my head about why they just couldn't pay for Deborah Foreman to come back and and be and be the older one. Okay, because when this movie started, I was like, oh, this is like an interesting thought. It's not the first time this has ever been done in terms of like a um, sequel or a remake or something like that. I don't think it's the first time, at least. It's not the first time a plot has been set up like this. But this whole notion of the remake just being the retelling of the story from an older woman's perspective. Like I thought that was a pretty cool, interesting way to set up your film. I just don't think they followed like that satisfaction. I just didn't get much satisfaction out of that after it started to like cut back and forth, like maybe like one or two other times, which is fine. Like I'm glad they didn't like interrupt the movie constantly flashing back to the present. But at some point I just didn't really understand why they were doing it um, and what relevance it really had unless I'm, dumb and just missed the one of the key themes of the of the film about passing on some sort of truth it just seemed like a a hokey way to set up your film which is fine it is what it is just doesn't really do much for it and overall i guess the jukebox musicalness of it was fun but it just didn't inspire me like some of my favorite musicals have in any sort of way and even some of my favorite more well i guess i'm not always the biggest fan of jukebox musicals to be fair but other musicals have inspired me uh, in a way, and some of the characters are just rather loathsome, I think, in this film, including and especially Logan Paul's character, which is probably what it's supposed to be. 
Uh, but yeah. honestly, I don't know why they didn't release this movie two years ago because no one goes see this movie and think, hmm, Logan Paul, cool kid, <laughs> when, when they walk out yeah. of the theater, which is, I think is one of the reasons why they didn't release it in 2017 or whenever it was originally supposed to release. It's because of everything that was going on with Logan Paul. But overall, it's an okay film. But I, I, I'm going to forget about this film in a couple of days. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. And also, I think you can check me. You can check me on this, but I think I don't think Deborah Foreman has been in a film in almost twenty years. So I seven was her last film. Okay, so she pro- may have like retired, and that's why they didn't. They couldn't get her back. But they could get uh, Joe Pesci out of retirement for The Irishman. Surely they could have gotten Deborah Foreman. Out I of think it's a little different. A uh, little different circumstances, perhaps. But Maybe. yeah, you know, you say the movie's okay, and I think you're you're pretty much right about that. And I think like that's not going to please anyone, right? Because when when we talked about this movie. And the trailer came out a few weeks ago. We talked about the movie on here, and, and you know, I I wanted this movie to be good. Of course, I mean, we, yeah. we all want this movie to be good. I, I, would, I would love to watch uh, five star movies every week. I want to be really clear yeah. about that. And I mean, I like some of the actors in it. Like, you know, it's a peppy musical, like you said. It's what we what we needed during uh, quarantine. But I also think, like, after the trailer, you know, you, you read about the release for this thing, and there were definitely cause for worries about whether this would be good or not. And like, just because of the type of the movie, a type of movie that it is, right? A cheesy sort of 80s musical. It had the potential to also be really actually pretty awful. Um, And it's not either of those things, right? Like, it's not like what I wanted it to be, which is, you know, a ton of fun and like, you know, exactly what we needed during quarantine. But it's also not a totally awful movie. It's just very middle of the road. And I mean, that, you know, I, I guess that on some level is a good thing because it has, you know, pretty decent moments here and there. I think the cast is pretty likable with a few exceptions. There's a couple of musical numbers that stand out. But really, this this whole thing just feels very mechanical, right? Like, if you were just going to make, like, if you had the idea to make a 80s nostalgia musical, like, this is exactly what you would make, right? Like, it's just like, there's nothing original about it whatsoever. It just feels very like a machine, produ- you know, processed um, 80s album. musical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, the song choices are a, a main example, I think. Like, some of the most, and I, and I, I have, I'm in two minds about this, right? Like, some of the most unoriginal song choices, like every 80s song that you would, you could think of is in here, like, like I said, we got the beat, which apparently opens the original Valley Girl movie, and that's why they chose to use that here. But like, Kids in America, Take on Me, it's like you Under can, pressure. yeah. If you think about like the you know ten songs that you associate with the '80s, most of them are probably in here. And, and so I say I'm in two minds about that because at the same time, right, this is a jukebox musical. You want songs that people know and are like are going to want to sit at home and sing along with or whatever. Um, and, and so like I'm not saying that they needed to have like you know steely dan b-sides or something in here but um i don't know just a little a little bit to spice up the soundtrack might have been uh you know more interesting because i just feel like we've heard that these songs like take on me and uh and we've got to be like we've heard these songs covered and, and covered to death like over the last 30 years like there's nothing about the rendition in this movie or the staging of the musical sequences that really make you know that that really brings anything new to them so under the pre- well, under pressure was kind of cool, but that was about it. That's when they have like under the pressure. Full- yeah, well, I, we'll talk about the musical numbers in more specific uh, detail. But I I did think that that was the standout for sure was the under pressure. But um, yeah. I think that talking about what you're talking about about sort of the whole like narrative blanketing this thing of that you know Alicia Silverstone and Camilla Marone right 
going through the story, uh, you know, Alicia Silverstone telling uh, her daughter about the story of, you know, what we see for most of the movie. I think that it works because um, like it, it is able to iron away some of the like logistical um, inaccuracies, I guess that they have in the movie. Like for example, with uh, the songs, right. They came out all over the eighties, right? Like, it, it, you wouldn't think that people would be dancing to like and singing to kids in America and take on me. And we got to be all at the same time in the eighties. Right. It's, they are songs that came out in different years. They're, they're popular at different times, but the way that it helps is because there's like a line early on where it's just the way I remember like, it. The, right. Exactly. Yeah. The first time they break away, sort of Camilla Marone is like, is that really what happened? She's like, That's you were dancing on a fountain. Yeah. So I think that, helps to get rid of some of that like those critiques and also it just like it, it makes it a little more like satirical in a way i think with like because otherwise it's just going to be like so cringy like groaning like in terms of the amount of cheesiness and some of the dialogue in the movie but i think like it's meant to be like it's this woman's idealized like you know memory of what this era was actually like and you know, there are probably a lot of differences between how it would have actually gone down and um, how she's she's imagining it. And so I think that helps with some of the cheesiness. And so I think that's why it doesn't like, you know, it's not a complete failure. And like I said, there's there's some fun moments here and there. I mean, I think Jessica Roth is great. Like she is she deserves to be a star. I do think she is maybe one of the only people here who has actual musical ability. Um, and so- Josh Whitehouse certainly doesn't play that much. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think she deserved to get a better musical than this. Um, but, you know, you can do a lot worse than this, I think in terms of movies to watch, you know, new movies that are out on VOD and quarantine. And like, I, I think, you know, obviously we're looking at it from a critical perspective, but if you're out there and you just want something lighthearted, turn off your brain to help you with the quarantine blues. I think that this movie will get the job done. I mean, it's not going to have you like running down the street, skipping and yeah. you know, everything, but it's enough of a mood lifter, I think to where I can recommend it to you in this particular time. And I, and I do think they've capitalized well on the coronavirus, right? Because, you know, you were saying it probably would have gone to VOD. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Like, obviously this movie was in release hell, uh, with no, I think Paul. it was going to go to theaters, but it, it wouldn't have made any money in theaters. It would have okay. been like Team Spirit a couple years. Yeah. Later. Well. Yeah. Well. Well. Like I said, I think either way, I think they've capitalized on the fact that we're in the coronavirus, and and that they probably know that they don't have like the greatest movie, and that this movie has been, you know, on on hold for five years or whatever. So I think that they they have done a smart thing by saying, look, here's something people know, right? Like, people know Valley Girl. Here's something familiar. Yeah. You know, we want something familiar in this unfamiliar time. So we're going to release release this out on VOD and people will watch it, whether Maybe. it's good or not. Yeah. Because if it was in theaters, they probably would have just skipped it because it's not that great. Yeah. I mean, I have a bit of a to, to this point. Exactly. I think this is pretty much the point you're making. Like I like they held this movie for three. like if they, I'll, I'll rewind. They held this movie for a variety of reasons for three years, probably. But rest assured, if they had a good movie, they would have released it three years ago. Like this movie would have come out if the movie was good, and it's and it's just not. It's just not that good. It's not bad. But it's just not that good. There's no reason to go to a theater to see that. Teens. I mean, I compared it to Teen Spirit, which was that last year. Time blurs together. I think that was last. It year. was, yeah, yeah, beginning of last year. That 
I was lukewarm. I think I actually gave it pretty, like the same star rating. I was going to say Teen Spirit is way better than this. But I was going to say is that like I if I rewatched Teen Spirit, I think that I would rate it much more highly because I'm still thinking about that movie like a year later. Like that's how good I think Elle Fanning was in that movie re- retrospectively. Yeah. Whereas like this movie, I'm going to forget about this movie in a couple of days. Like honestly, if I remember this movie like this time next week when we're talking when we're recording the podcast, honestly, I'll be surprised. Yeah, and and Max Minghella like had did really directed that movie in an interesting way, right? There's nothing interesting yeah. about again the staging, you know, all, all of like the the beats you would expect here. You know, they're in the they're in the uh, roller skating rink. There's the uh, the prom scene. There's I mean, it, it's just it's a know, crappy again, Romeo. Very it's like a really crappy Romeo. Yeah, Julia. it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Scott, let's talk about the cast a little bit. Um, because you know it, it is a pretty decent cast. I, I mean, I, I must say for um, th- this type of movie, um, and it's you know it's one of the reasons that I would have expected a little bit better from the movie than what we got in the end. But Jessica Roth, obviously, we know from primarily from the Happy from the Happy Death Day series, um, exactly. where she sort of made a name uh, as Tree. I think there's probably a little bit of Tree in this character uh, as well uh, of Julie here. At least a little bit of the Tree at the start of Happy Death Day. Um, in this character of Julie, but um, also we have, the Valley Girl accent or not, she just kept going in and out of it the whole movie. It, yeah, in places she definitely does drop out of it. But uh, like, there's people like Chloe Bennett and Ashley Murray who are stars from TV, mainly known for their TV work. Logan Paul, obviously YouTuber. Um, but then there's more established actors in here as well too. Like I mentioned, Rob Hubel and Judy Greer, uh, Mae Whitman. I, I don't know how long that she is going to be able to go on playing a teenager because she is 31 years old. This was shot I, five. Like this was shot five years ago, though. I know, but still, she was 26 or whatever. Like, and she, I mean, she. she she could easily be 31 in this movie as awesome. I mean, I think she's supposed to be a little bit older than the, yeah, the high school like kids. Like that. Yeah. But still, like, she has been doing, like, teenage, like, borderline high school college roles for, like, 20 years, probably. I mean, <laughs> Not that much, but 15 years. Right, <laughs> right from, from since Arrested Development. So, like, the fact that she's still, still trying to pull this off. But uh, regardless, Scott, who stood out to you uh, from this cast? Honestly, I think you're more positive on the cast than I am. I don't know if too many people stand on this cast. I think like Jessica Roth stands out in this cast, just but de facto that everyone else in this cast is like just again just horribly average. I think in this film, like maybe Mae Whitman sticks out a little bit too, but I felt just like banging my head against a wall with Josh Whitehouse and 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 also for that matter like Logan Paul. Honestly, I just a lot of these characters. You said the cast is most mostly likable. I don't know if that's true for me. I just think I just kind of shrug my shoulders. Like I liked Jessica Roth's character, but at the same time, I don't know if this like the if it's that likable relative to other things that we watch. I think that Julie is someone who like kind of has her head up her ass for like most of the movie in terms of like I can be different and and her friends suck. Like some of her friends really suck. I think like the yeah. exception is I forget the girl's S- name. Stacy yeah, that's right. Yeah, Stacy, who's like the the one who I think she ends up like making up with first uh, by the end of the film. I'm just like, she's the only likable character in this film, I think. Honestly, I just, I don't know how likable even Jessica Roth is. Like, you certainly empathize with her situation. Um, but I, I don't know if, if, this, if this Julie is that likable in the grand scheme of things. So for me, it's hard to say that anyone in particular stands out. It's going to be one of those things that if, if people remember Jessica Roth doing this movie at the end of her career, that means she didn't have a very good career. 
um, because I think even Happy Death Day, both it, the original and the sequel, not her performance in La La Land, just because it was such a minor role, but just everything she's done is better than this, I think. And that, and that doesn't mean this is bad, but I just think everything else she's done is better than this. I mean, Happy Death Day is leagues above this, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, we agree about that. We, we're we're yeah. in perfect agreement about yeah, Right, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I did like her performance. I think she just has a lot of charisma, even if the, the character isn't maybe always the most likable. I think that she, she like makes every, up for Everything it. about this film is just like so 80s and so like Valley, which I get is the point. But mm-hmm. like it just it just takes you out because they don't sound like real people. And they're not doing real people things, right? And I understand that's part of being in a musical. Like I totally yeah, never, understand that. Never watch Clueless. <laughs> that's that's my recommendation yeah. for you. Yeah, but, but like that film knows, I mean, like I haven't seen Clueless, but that, that film knows what it is. Right, I, and like I guess this film also knows. What I think it is. this movie knows what it is, yeah. But I just don't think that anyone is. So when we talk about like the likability of the character, yes, there's some charisma, but I don't know if that's a standout performance or just something about the way that these performances just didn't stand out to me that much. I guess. Yeah, no, I agree with you that nobody stands out that much in in a good way, other than Jessica Roth, probably. Certainly not Josh Whitehouse. I, I don't think he left much of an impact at all. I thought he was pretty lame. Um, Logan Paul, I mean, I think he does what he's supposed to do, right? Like, we we don't like him, but we're not supposed to like him. Um, and, yeah, like Logan Paul. and so, yeah, maybe some cre- give some credit where credit is due. I thought Rob Hubel and Judy Greer were pretty delightful during their few minutes on screen. I wanted more of them because when, when I first saw, I, I didn't even know that they were in the movie. And when I first saw that they were playing like Julie's parents, I was like, okay, we're going to get some like solid comic relief here. And there were moments, but um, they were just, they were pretty fleeting moments, I have to yeah. say. And so they, they are capable of a lot better in terms of comic relief. Like I said, they reminded me a lot of, um, Amy's parents from Booksmart, Caitlin Deaver's character. Yeah. Oh, which is yeah. what Will Will Forte and um oh the girl from Friends, Phoebe from Friends. I can't remember her name. Oh, Lisa Kudrow, yeah. Lisa Kudrow. Um so they reminded I just felt like if you'd put Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte in as these parents, it would have it also would have been the same. Which is not a bad thing. That's not that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Just, uh, Lisa Kudrow plays a great mom in some other movies as well. But yeah. um I I did like as well. I mean, I liked, even though, again, even though they're not on screen that much, I liked Alicia Silverstone and Camilla Marone. I thought that when they cut away, those scenes were, were pretty fun between the two of them. Like how, how, how uh, Ruby does like a complete 180, of course, about how she feels about uh, her mom's story. And by the end is, you know, they're eating ice cream and they're really into it. But as far yeah, as Alicia Silverstone. To me though, I guess, I mean, at least Camilla Marone was like actually 18 when they shot this movie, but yeah. um I guess I just didn't find that believable, and also just like I really? can't see Alicia Silverstone, like the the complete 180 that she takes about like just hearing her mom's story and like that she's interested at all in the story. Yeah, I'm a little surprised by that, but um, I think just the I can't see Alicia Silverstone and just not think about the fact that she's an anti-vaxxer. So that that's like my own problem. So. Well, uh, yeah. Regardless, uh, yeah. T- talking about her, it is obvious to me that she was put in this role because of Clueless, right? Like she has yeah. played the most iconic Valley Girl of all time in Cher, but that movie came out in the 90s, right? That was the most 90s zeitgeist movie that has ever existed. And so it just feels really sort of disorienting because like on the one hand, you know that she's there because of Clueless, but, and and she's doing like an older version of Cher for, for the most part in her scenes. But at the same time, like that movie wasn't set in the 80s. So like when you're flashing back to the 80s, you're like, wait, something doesn't seem right about this, but 
nevertheless, I did like their dynamic. I, I believed it for the most part that that she would kind of get invested in hearing about, uh, you know, that her mom was actually like a social person. And like in this really sort of kitschy 80s narrative, right, that she has created. Uh, yeah. I think that that would be kind of a fun thing for that her character would have liked listening to. But I don't know. Again, that's a small part of the movie. And yeah. I, I want I did want more of it, I, to be to be quite honest, because they're both really charismatic actresses. Yeah. Um, I thought so, that she was in it because it was because she was Batgirl. Yeah. Uh, other than that, like, I don't know about anyone standing out. Um, yeah, Mae Whitman didn't do much for me. Like, Chloe Bennett is is the villain here. I don't like. Though I I did enjoy the yoga number, the musical number where they're like at yoga or whatever, and um, there's it's it's a mashup of a few songs, right? Like that's the one moment where they sort of do get a little creative with the music because they're mashing up like Material Girl and like Just Can't Get Enough and one or two other songs that get mashed up in there. That was that was a fun musical number, I think. But uh, that's really the only opportunity I think that she gets to shine. But Talking about the music, Scott, um, I have given some of my thoughts about it, but what, what did you think about uh, the soundtrack as a whole and any individual musical numbers that stood out? Yeah, look, the soundtrack as a whole, it's upbeat, right? You're, if you're looking for some some light, uplifting, upbeat music in your movie in a jukebox musical, you're going to get that out of there. I do, or out of this, sorry. And Scott, I but I do agree with you that there's very little original going on. I mean, that's kind of like the crime of jukebox musicals, that unless your choreography is really compensating, then you're gonna you're lacking the originality in the music. And, and that can be fine. But when you're just picking a hodgepodge of some of the most famous songs from the 80s, then it's going to even seem even less original. That being said, like, I was watching this movie with my girlfriend and... We're like we both like to your point. We both sang along. Like you picked movies that we would sing along to. We both sang along to a handful of songs, and so it definitely it definitely checks the box from a jukebox musical perspective there, uh, and and nails it as you know from that at that measure. But the problem is there again, just not that much interesting choreography. I mean, you think about look, this, it's not fair to compare. It, but like if think about even like Ro like Rocket Man had way better choreography than this. Like I was oh, yeah. a huge oh, yeah. like at least the choreography in Rocket Man was like really interesting. Yeah, those they, were the best parts of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and what they what transformed the music to. Again, I understand it's not fair to compare this to Rocket Man just because they're doing they're doing very different things and they're telling very different stories obviously and their whole goal of the movie is very different I think. But I think that it really lacked in its creativity of remixing and choreography with a few exceptions and one that I mentioned earlier that I think is the one that uh, I would point to is under pressure. Like that's one that's actually I think done really well because it it kind of it cuts around to all these different people as it's, they get yeah, ready for it, prom night and they say and they tell they sing the song at different paces, different background things. It, it works really well for me. I think that was some really creative remixing there. Yeah, it is what uh, what one day more is to Les Miser. It is what sure. uh, nonstop is to Hamilton. Like it, this, like sort of climactic number, right, where you're bringing all the characters together, and like the lyrics of the song are conveying what each of them feel, despite it being them being in unique scenarios. And you know, obviously, the sort of whole chorus of them coming together to sing. Um, you know, what was cool. I mean, and I, I too, of course, being the music, music person I thought about, I was like, uh, here's this song by like two people who are dead, right? Um, David Bowie and, and Freddie Mercury and, um, hearing all of these people sort of sing it, you know, after, 
after their deaths and stuff, I, I thought that that was a little like touching in that way, just because, uh, you know, their their song has stayed alive and is still being sung by a lot of people, even if it's a, even if we are supposed to be like flashing back to the 80s or whatever. So whatever. Yeah. But what about you? Um, what did you think? Yeah, no, I mean, Under Pressure was really good. Um, I like the yoga number. Like I said, I think the songs get better. During- By the way, sorry. I, I, I keep aerobics, saying- yeah. What, what? Yeah. What? Okay. I, I should have known because it's the eighties, but uh, I did think the songs got a little bit better in the second half. I, I will say, I will say that they use boys don't cry by the cure. And like, that is a great song, but I just don't think that any of these kids in this movie would be, would have been listening to the cure because like we're talking about, yeah, I mean, I know this song was probably popular back then. It's probably on the radio, but we're talking about like the most famous goth band of all time talking about the cure. And you have like the most, you know, acid washed you know, white kids, like rich white kids who are, who are the main characters, mainly the characters of this movie. Um, well, it, it, but it's Josh Whitehouse and Mae Whitman who are singing it, right? Like, isn't it them on the roof? That, okay i mean yeah that, that is a good point and they are they're they're supposed to be punks so if anyone would know about the cure it would probably be them but i, I don't know it, it still just felt like in this movie where everything is just really like peppy and upbeat it felt like a little sanitized like it felt like a sanitized version of uh that song which i think is meant to be a little edgier because it comes from a very edgy band uh at least at that you know at the point of history where they were coming up but uh, not an 80s song there you go. But that's how I remember it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we get uh, we get a little Billy Idol in there, which I, I like dancing with myself. So I mean, there's there's some good numbers in, in the movie. I I liked when they were, you know, they got a little inventive with it. And it wasn't just, you know, like I said, the tried and true pop songs like when I was just waiting for Take On Me to happen. Right. Because it happens a little further into the movie. There's like they're on a merry-go-round or whatever. And it's just like when I heard the like first few songs and I was like, okay, so this is what like the type of soundtrack is going to be. Like I knew Take On Me was going to just pop up in there somewhere. And we get the safety dance, too, and the uh, in the roller skating sequence. So not a whole lot of imagination, unfortunately, but it's going to get people singing along. So, I, I mean, I guess that's the goal here. And so I, I guess I can't complain too much. They probably accomplished what they were aiming for, for the most part, with the, the musical numbers that they selected. Under In that regard, I would have just liked if there was more creative staging, like you said. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess, finally, anything regarding the plot, the romance? Uh, not that there's, you know, a whole, a whole ton of it here, but we do get this sort of Romeo and Juliet dynamic, like you said, uh, almost a tree. Um, Julie being the, the, you know, rich girl and, um, and uh, what's his face? The other guy being uh, from the, the punk from the wrong side of the tracks. And like, apparently his parents don't like him or whatever, but we never even like see his parents or anything in the movie. It's just like a passing line by Mae Whitman. Right. Uh, it's not a passing line. He, he talked about how his dad, walked down on him and his mom before he right, was born that's true, yeah. and his mom kicked him out of the house because she wanted to start a real family again it yeah. was a very again that was like all delivered in one line outside the skin it's, it's, so it's like not, an afterthought yeah uh, yeah they they explained they explained one line with one other line later in the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> called it the day um did any of this work for you scott no on, like honestly scott no like this is, I guess this is the part where I think back. I was like, wait, this wasn't on Netflix because it just felt like some crappy teen rom com plot that I could have, that I've definitely watched on like watching The Kissing Booth or just some absolute trash from a couple of years ago. I mean, The Kissing Booth, easily one of the worst movies I've ever seen, probably. 
from a couple years ago and it felt like the plot was similar if not exactly the same but uh very similar in that yeah it's this you know girl is dating complete douchebag finds someone different from herself and her friends and is edgier but like also a douchebag and then ends up with neither of them which i actually i'll give it one credit in the very last that was good yeah like we well i didn't end up with him and he's kind of you know he transformed me and like he changed the way that i felt but we didn't end up together at least i felt good about that i guess but that, like, was, I was, a surpri- that was a surprisingly like mature attitude for this movie yeah it, it was i mean i knew that i knew that they must not end up together because yeah camilla maroney's character is like this, this isn't that. Like, that this yeah, was her dad, yeah. Exactly. So I knew that they weren't going to end up together, um, which is a good thing because I didn't think that they should end up together because at, at least in the states that they were in, right, they I think they both, especially Randy, probably needs to mature a little bit. And uh, it's just this constant thing where it's like, why are there never any like people who like guys in, in that are like likable in these types of rom-coms, I feel like. It's just like everyone, like both of these guys, both Logan Paul's character and... Uh, Josh Whitehouse's character Randy is just like not likable at all. Like I, I really don't think that this character yeah. of of Randy is very likable. And I'm maybe if I'm in the minority, I guess I'm in the minority. But I didn't find him to be a particularly likable guy. Um, and so well, I, right. I rom coms like this never work for me. And I felt that way about there. And it's not the first rom com I've seen where like both of the love people in the love triangle aren't very likable. And I, when when you make characters like that that aren't likable, like I'm not invested in. Who, if any, they end up with, which is why I'm happier she ends up with none of them in the end. Yeah, because we have the whole fight scene between Logan Paul and Josh Whitehouse. And he, you know, ends the scene or whatever by saying, you're all a bunch of stuck up trust fund kids or whatever. And, you know, gets dragged out of there. And he never really, like, recants on that. Like, by the at the end of the movie, I'm like, I feel like he still feels that way. about. I mean, like, he probably he likes Julie or whatever because she has reconciled with him. I, I, I don't know, but... I still feel like he views that whole world from which she comes as like, you know, people Stuck being up. spoiled and yeah. Um, and, and they and are. So, I mean, that world is kind of like that, to be fair. It, but it is. But yeah, I mean, if we're supposed to believe this relationship, right? I, I think that yeah. um, that Julie would not would not be going for that. And I mean, I guess ultimately she didn't go for it, right? Maybe, who knows what actually came came between them but um, who knows what there's definitely not real life story about what ultimately came between them yeah uh but i i, I did I, I did like the fact that like you said that was the ending there was one scene that, that i kind of liked where he like comes into her room and they're talking about her drawings and like she her wanting to go to like the fashion place or whatever in like school in new york and i was like okay there's a little something about like following your dreams here or whatever but they didn't really do much with that. Well, they um, just brought it back in the end credits, right? Where they made up these like, and now these people are like this, which I thought was, I thought that was really funny, by the way. Oh, I don't um, even think I saw that. Did you just turn it off before? They had these end I credits. Think I did, yeah. Explain where every character ends up. Oh, um, okay. That was actually really funny. Um, oh, okay. Well, I wish I'd watched it now, but yeah, plot wise, not much, not much to talk about here, but um, anything else, Scott, before we move into the wrap up on Valley Girl? Yeah, I, I think just on that note, I think I do want to say, like, this movie is funny. Like, I ended up, I, I, sometimes I might have been laughing at the movie. I'm not sure if I was always laughing yeah. with the movie. But it did make me laugh uh, probably more than Love Love Wedding Repeat or whatever the hell that oh, movie was going to watch far, a, few, yeah. a few weeks ago. Um, so I I think going back to your point earlier, before, you know, before we wrap up, before we put a score on it, going back to your point of if you're just looking to turn your brain off and have a, a little bit of fun for an hour and 40 minutes, it's going to do that. It's not going to stick with you. 
But right now we don't we don't always need to watch movies that are just yeah. stick with us. So I think it'll check enough boxes where this is the kind of movie that I gave it two and a half stars on Letterboxd. This is the kind of two and a half star movie that I'd recommend if you just want to turn your brain off for a little while. Yeah, I concur in terms of a, uh, a general uh, thought on the movie. But yeah. uh, okay, Scott, favorite scene or moment from Valley Girl? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that it's it is the under pressure song because I mean, I came into this movie wanting the jukebox musical element. Like the reason we picked this movie this week is because it was a musical, and so I think for me that the the moment that I'm going to pick or the scene that I'm going to pick is uh, is going to be a musical scene, and that is under pressure. So I'm glad there was at least one for me, and there were a couple others too. Like as as I really maybe as it was to hear "Take on Me" or as as uh, predictable as it was, I still sung along with the song. It was still, you know, well done if unoriginal. Um, but under pressure would be the moment that I thought, cause that was the moment where I was like, all right, they did it. They got the one song that really worked for them in the, in the choreography and how they're telling the story. Uh, but other than that, unfortunately, I do think there's a lot of very throwaway stuff in this. Yeah. I, I just, in terms of a small moment, I guess I loved getting to hear Alicia Silverstone say as if again, because, mm, um, yeah. you know, clueless is in my top 25 movies of all time, probably F- favorite movies. So, um, you know, it was an, it was an obvious, play to uh people who love clueless but i am one such person so um however forced or shoehorned in it may have been to get her to say that it worked for me so um yeah uh let's put a score on it scott yeah smack dab in the middle 5.0 for me it's just bang on in the middle of the score chart yeah it's fine I will give it a slight bump because it's quarantine um, and it is better than some of the stuff we've seen, right? It's better than extraction It's better than love wedding repeat. Um, so 6.0, I'll go one point higher than you. All right, Scott, that does it for our review of Valley girl. After the break, we're going to talk about um, some new reboots uh, in the works from Disney, including a national treasure and a pirates of the Caribbean reboots that are coming. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the exciting cast for uh, in night Shyamalan's next film. So uh, we'll be right back. episode of Some Like It, Scott. All right, Scott, a couple of bits of news here to hit before we conclude today's episode. And you wanted to talk about the cast uh, that was released for M. Night Shyamalan's next movie. Obviously, Shyamalan's still uh, a big name director. He's had a little bit of a resurgence, a little bit of a comeback here with uh, with Split and Glass after you know a, a very disappointing middle part of his career. And so there, there's definitely some attention on his next project. And I think this cast is going to get even more attention. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, Scott, I totally agree. I think this whole story started on maybe Thursday or Friday, or I honestly, I think it actually might have been Friday now that I'm thinking about it, with the breaking news that Alex Wolf was going to be in the main cast of his film. Alex Wolf, probably best known at this point for Hereditary, his role in, I guess, is that a supporting role or main role? I don't know. I haven't seen it, so you'd it's, be better judge. It's a, it's a supporting role. I mean, he plays the son of the family, but it's a, it's, it's a meaty role. And, and I, I will yeah. say it's his most famous role. If you don't count the naked brothers band, of course. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> is that a band or something? I, I don't, I don't get that joke. Sorry. Well, I really, I can't believe you don't, you haven't heard of the naked brothers band before. This is like, we need to stop the presses right now. You don't remember the, the classic Nickelodeon show. No, I didn't, I didn't watch Nickelodeon as a kid. I, like I didn't watch okay, much well, SpongeBob. Well, that explains Rugrat. well. Nat and Alex Wolf had a pretty popular show when we were, uh, you know, in 
middle school, maybe like a late elementary school called the Naked Brothers Band, where they were character, where they were, you know, were in a band together. And so I think that is probably still his most famous role, at least for people of our age range. But yeah, you're right to point out Hereditary as well. Interesting. Well, you learn something new every day, even yeah. if you're recording the podcast. Um, yeah, so his most famous role, probably either Hereditary. He was briefly in Bad Education as well. He had a very minor role in that one. And I think he's been in some other stuff here and there. But he is one of the main uh, actors in M. Night Shyamalan's next film. And then later that afternoon, I guess, because Justin Kroll felt like he'd been one-upped or scooped by, by Jeff Snyder, who is the one I think who broke the Alex Wolf thing, uh, Justin Kroll decided to go ahead and drop the rest of the cast uh, most of the main cast as well, including Eliza Scanlon. Uh, I know her best probably from from Sharp Objects, which she was one of the one of the main supporting roles in Sharp Objects on HBO a couple years back. But she's also very well known, I think, just for her role in Little Women last year as the youngest. Is it Beth? She plays Beth, Beth March. Yes. Yeah, she plays Beth March, the the youngest, not the youngest. Sorry, the second youngest sister. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> That's why I was confused when I watched the easy first. Easy mistake to make. Young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she plays Beth March in, in Little Women, and she's been in a few other things here and there, but she's been cast in the film. One of my personal parents, I think the one that caught my eye the most in this cast, Thomasine McKenzie uh, of Jojo Rabbit fame, as well as Leave No Trace, which I think she was even better in, in my, in my opinion. And then writing out the other two people who were connected to this film, uh, Aaron Pierre, who I'm not familiar with. I think uh, that, yeah. that name doesn't, doesn't, doesn't remind me or make me think of anything, but Vicky Crepes, who I think is best known for her role, her supporting role in Phantom Thread. I think that's the thing she's best known for, a movie which I loved from, was that 2017? I think I loved back in 2017, but for the life of me, never want to see that film again because that is one of those PTA movies that really takes it out of you uh, over the course of the film. And uh, although he didn't get an Oscar, did he get an No, he got a nomination, but he didn't get a win. Yeah, Uh, you know, the the final film, for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, where he did get an Oscar nomination, but he was not able to win. But really great, a really great film. Would recommend if you haven't seen that, but make sure you're in the right headspace for that film. But yeah, amazing cast. I don't know if we know anything else about this movie, but it is over at uh, NBC Universal, where Shyamalan has his overall deal from Split and and Glass from last year. So expect to see this on VOD sometime soon. Uh, I was with you until the end there. Yeah, um, obviously, obviously, I'm joking about that. But no, yeah. I, I think uh, Shemelon there has a really great cast to work with. Who knows if anyone else will join the supporting cast as as this as this movie fills out, Scott? But I don't know anything about this film. It's pro- like many Shemelon films, a lot of things are being kept under wrap about the plot just because of the type of movies that he writes and directs, and often having plot twists and uh, just general twists and turns over the course of the film. So we don't know too much about the plot, Scott. But how do you feel about this cast? Because I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I am too. And like all those actors you named, I think that they have a good track record, even as young as some of them are, for like picking interesting projects. Like they are, um, you know, they they are selective in the types of movies that they choose to be in. And I don't think they're the type who's just going to go be in any old thing because of the paycheck. They actually want to, you know, choose movies for their quality. And so that gives me some hope about that this might actually be a good movie or that, you know, the script for it that they, they probably read was was strong. Um, I mean, I think Split is pretty good. I thought Glass was underrated last year for sure. Um, and so I am I'm back on the train of his. I mean, I, I he you know, I, I still think obviously that his best stuff is, is unbreakable in Sixth Sense and Science, but um, he definitely has good movies still in him and he's making different. He's making stuff that is different. Right. He is one of the few like name filmmakers 
kind of like Christopher yeah. Nolan, right? Who doesn't um, put out like uh, traditionally like franchise licensed fare, right? He's 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 creating still his own original stories, um, original universes. When he did it, when he did license content, it was trash. He did the last yeah. Airbender, didn't he? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like you know, with with Unbreakable and Split and Glass, like he created his own universe, which was kind of cool. Um, and so I am on board with him as a director, and and this cast I think is is very promising for this next movie. So yeah, yeah, he's definitely one. Of, he's definitely on the auteur list, I'd say, of people who make just very original mm -hmm. content. Yeah, um, pivoting directions a little bit, Scott. Uh, we got some Disney news this week that I'm actually excited about. We got um, some news about two of my favorite live-action Disney properties of all time, uh, those being Pirates of the Caribbean and National Treasure. National Treasure being just a great, fun, dumb movie, in my opinion, the first one at least. And Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, some of the later sequels definitely they went downhill but that original movie and in, in my opinion is one of the greatest adventure movies of all time so um i i love that movie and i think that you know it's still a little soon maybe for a reboot but the idea that they have for a reboot i think is what intrigues me a little bit more and they're talking about a more female oriented cast and the name which has been circulating around this uh reboot is karen gillen right who um Obviously, she's been in some big budget stuff, right? Jumanji uh, is adventure style movies that she has been in. Uh, and of course, the MCU, like she's been in the most, the biggest movie franchise of all time, probably um, with the MCU playing Nebula and was a pretty significant role by the end of Avengers Endgame. So uh, she is a name that people recognize now. And I, I do think she is at the point where she could anchor something like this. She could. She, she could be like the the top build person on this Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and combined with the name, I mean, the you know the Pirates of the Caribbean audience, right? The the audience that just having the name Pirates of the Caribbean will bring could you know bring people to the theater to see this movie, and so I think that's a good choice in terms of who they're looking at for this role, and I'm excited. I would like to be able to erase from my mind the last couple of Pirates movies by mm -hmm. having you know. A couple of good ones. I didn't see the very last one. I did see the fourth one, I guess. But Stranger um, Tides, that one? I saw in Stranger Tides. It was terrible. Yeah. And then, you know, talking about National Treasure, as you said there, Scott, it's a Disney Plus TV series that they're looking at. No one has been cast in this yet, but they are looking at having a much younger cast than in the original, which I personally think makes sense. It seems like maybe they're going to go for a kind of a YA teen angle on this, um, which I think makes sense because, like, one of the most talked about shows of this year to come out so far, right, is Outer Banks, which is a show about teenagers hunting for treasure. And so, like, this is the kind of plot, right, that um, is fresh in people's mind at the moment. Um, you know, social media is is a flood with Outer Banks TikToks and stuff. So this is kind of... Oh, it's really? Kind I, of, didn't even, I didn't even realize that. Oh, yeah. No, it's... All I've seen is Tiger King, dude. Tiger King is the only thing I see on my timelines. I guess you need to diversify your follower, the, who you're following. But I think that this has been a big hit for Netflix. Um, I'm looking forward to. I haven't watched it, yet, but I'm really looking forward to watching it as soon as I finish uh, Plot Against America. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the type of show, right, where they are aiming for that type of social media engagement. Right? Like this, they're not like they didn't create the show to go out and win Emmys. They created the show so that people will go make TikToks and follow the actors on Instagram because they are really good looking and stuff like that. And that, I mean, in that regard, I think they've been very successful. And you There's have a lot of <laughs> they, they engagement for you. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's 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 yeah. it's a better show than maybe tra even trailers would suggest. I think is it better um, than the Society? I stumped him, guys. I think they're. I think they're going for something different. Um, well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's better. I think it's better. Um, maybe that's recency bias, but I mean, I was hooked uh, on Outer Banks. I burned through it pretty quickly. I guess I did with the Society too. But anyway, two really solid uh, shows there, and, and a lot of people are talking about Outer Banks. So I think that bringing this back with a with a coming of age YA slant makes sense and they can maybe capitalize on some of that audience who um, is looking for similar type stuff because there's maybe not a ton of this type of like adventure you know type yeah. shows and stuff and out there for like, there's not audience. very much indiana jones like fair out there and, and especially for teen audiences so i think that that's a good idea and hey i will definitely watch this if um if you know if and when they produce it because I'm I'm looking to get some more mileage out of my Disney Plus subscription. Yeah, you and sure everyone else. Jesus. Yeah, um, Scott, what are your thoughts on these two uh, reboots? Yeah, I think the Pirates of the Caribbean one is is good. I'm honestly more excited because it's Karen Gillan getting involved with it than it is Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't give a crap about this franchise anymore. Like I loved the first film. Yeah. I liked the second and the third films, and I didn't even bother to go see the fourth and the fifth ones. Like, man, I just I just could not care less and talk about just trying to milk your franchise dry. Uh, that's what they were doing with the fourth and fifth films. And so going this direction and, and rebooting it, whether it's a soft or a hard reboot, whatever it is, um, and going the direction of Karen Gillan, who, yes, you're right. She's, you know, been in J the Jumanji movies. She's been in the MCU for five, six years, ever since Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. Um, but she still feels underrated to me. Like she still feels like an underutilized talent in my opinion, because I think that she's underrated as Nebula in the MCU mainly. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the Jumanji movies, honestly. I haven't seen either of them. But Doctor, she has Doctor Who as well, of course, which is right, not yeah. something that we're into, but I mean, millions Doctor of people are. are. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, she she feels like, and I said this to you, she feels like someone who up there with like Jodie Comer, like put those two together in this movie, like Disney. Go You're just Jody angling Comer. for Jodie Comer to get anything. Right you know, now. I'm a Jodie Comer fan. I am watching season three of Killing Eve right now, but. They would be an amazing combo in like an adventure movie like this. Like honestly, they'd just be a great combination, especially if you're going for a more female-centric film. Like I'm sure there are other people who would work. Don't get me wrong, but I just think like you're missing out if you don't put Jodie Comer in more things uh, right now. Maybe honestly, maybe she's maybe she's outside the range of once you've got Karen Gillan. Maybe they don't want someone like the level of a Jodie Comer. Yeah. who's a very expensive star right that's now. That's what I was thinking as well. Um, I mean, they, but, they're a little similar even. But I think that's the point. I think that you want people who are similar. But maybe maybe that's maybe that's a bad idea from just a marketing perspective. I don't know. But anyway, I think that would be a cool combination. I don't necessarily see them doing that, but I think of them very similarly in terms of how they would be able to to succeed in those roles. And so either way, whether they get Jodie Comer or not, I am actually a little bit intrigued. Maybe not excited yet, but a little bit intrigued about what they're doing over there and what direction they go with that film. I think ultimately what's going to sell me or make me shrug is what the story ends up looking like, what it actually ends up being about it. Are you setting it in the exact same universe? Is it sort of parallel to what was happening in the other films? We'll see what happens. As for the National Treasure series, I agree. Like anything they can do to make me feel like I'm getting my money's worth out of Disney Plus because we're just still just absolutely nothing on Disney Plus right now 
except like you were basically if you have a Disney Plus subscription, you're either just rewatching like the Disney or Pixar animated movies, or you're just waiting for Mandalorian season two and the Marvel shows. Like there's just not that much else going on the platform and it sucks. And they were smart. They were very smart last year to get people to commit to like one year, three year signups, because otherwise I think everyone would be dropping their Disney Plus subscription right now. Um, so good on the smart, smart business move by Disney because they're light on content. And so if they can build out their MCU, their Star Wars shows with more uh, content off of other franchises, whether it's Pirates of the Caribbean, which that's not for Disney Plus or National Treasure, or one of the other, you know, they have a long list of live action franchises that they just don't really seem to be leveraging. Um, then that would be good because I think that if they do it right, there's absolutely a market for this type of show. Um, and, and to your point, Scott, the Outer Banks, maybe that's the thing that pushed this the I guess the reaction to this, this on social media, the reaction to Outer Banks, maybe that is something that pushed that from, all right, this is something that we have going on in the background to, all right, let's do this right now. And we'll see when production things start again, but I think they'd want to get this series out, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I would think so too. I mean, I think people of our age range too would, would be a good target for this just because we're the ones who have nostalgia for National Treasure, right? Like I can remember going to see the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, my parents do in the sense that they took me to see and my brother to see this movie when it came out and also enjoyed it. But did they have um, nostalgia for it? And no, maybe probably not. I yeah. mean, they wouldn't watch the series. But yeah. Um, but yeah, like I can remember like they would put on National Treasure when I was in like elementary school as if it was yeah. some kind of history lesson. I mean, I guess it is to some extent, but um, yeah, Sean Bean dying is a history lesson for movies right there. Sean Bean dying is a history lesson in Sean Bean's film career. Um, yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I guess the last thing to note, Scott, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because we talk way too much about Star Wars probably, um, And but Taika Waititi is basically confirmed now to uh, direct a new Star Wars film. Christy Wilson Cairns, who just wrote 1917, is going to be writing the script for the Star Wars film. This is something that has been rumored for a bit in terms of Taika directing one. Obviously, he directed two episodes of The Mandalorian, and there were two of the – one ep- – was it just the finale? Yeah. Okay, just a finale, but the finale was excellent of Mandalorian. So uh, I think that he's definitely a name that people have been wanting for Star Wars, um, you know, for, for some time now. And looks like he's going to get his chance. Yeah, I think we talked about this. I can't remember what it was, but a while back when this was rumored. And at the time, Taika Waititi, I think, denied it. And so we're like, okay, maybe this isn't happening. Maybe someone got this rumor wrong. But a nice late April Fool's joke, I guess, that he was joking about not doing it because he is doing it. And yes, I think Taika Waititi directing a Star Wars movie and knowing his style, both from Jojo Rabbit and Thor Ragnarok and everything else that you know he's done and knowing what his style is like gets you excited. But honestly, the fact that Christy Wilson Cairns is writing this movie with him is gets me even more excited because I think one of the aspects of 1917 that's underappreciated is how interestingly that was written, right? Because it was such a different type of film. Like your screenplay for that film is not a bunch of te- a bunch of like written word text, like people what things are gonna people say on the screen. It's a lot of directions, a lot of those elements to it. Like you have to tell like the actual kind of, I guess I don't know what it's called in screenwriting, or whatever, but the actual direction of the cast. Uh, on like on the stage and on the set is the most important part of that script. And so bringing that experience and taking that and combining that with Taika's Waititi's, I think that uh, I think that we're going to be in for a treat. Yeah, no, I think that they're definitely capitalizing on, you know, two people who are linked to best picture winning films or nominated films last year. So, I mean, makes sense to me. Um, okay, Scott, anything else before we uh, finish off today's episode? 
I don't think so. I'm uh, yeah, I've been trying not to, again. I, I know about this at the beginning, but this week or some for some reason I've just been thinking about it a lot. It's just thinking about all the movies that were that we're missing right now because everything that's happened. It's been a real bummer. It's a shame, but you know we will. I guess we'll get our just desserts when uh, when all of them start coming out next year. Um, True, and, and I was about to be in Japan for the last week and a half if all things had gone according to plan. Oh wow! Yeah. I'd be getting back today, actually, which obviously that didn't happen. But anyway, oh well. Oh well, indeed. Uh, stay inside. My life people. is not that bad. My life is really not that bad. Yeah, first world problems. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, everyone's problems are valid right now. I think that you know. It, People tend to think that because they're not like, you know, with they don't have three relatives in the hospital dying of coronavirus and like are on food stamps and stuff like that, that their problems don't matter. But like they do like yeah. um, everyone is going through something right now. Yeah. Like getting your your college graduation like postponed or whatever may seem like a trite thing in, in the context of everything else that's going on. But like it matters. Um, and sure. so. I want everyone to know that your your yeah. problems are valid. Um, People dying is anyway, more important, but even the smaller problems count too. Stay inside so we can have those graduations and we can stop people dying. That would be great. Um, okay, Scott, that'll do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarby Dent. Uh, don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page as well. Uh, patreon.com slash media plug pods we have a bunch of great tiers over there where you can support us even if you can't support us don't forget to rate review subscribe do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app also subscribe to our newsletter which is uh you can find the link to do so in the description for this episode uh and of course please join us for our next episode on which we will we will be reviewing uh the new canadian film the castle in the ground also, also, we have a brand new miniseries out. Maybe. It depends on whether Tenet <laughs> is actually delayed this week. I will pull down the episode if it's delayed. But for yes. now, for now, part one of our brand new miniseries, The Nolan Countdown, is up for you to, to, to listen to. We're reviewing Chris Nolan's first film following, which almost surely none of our listeners have seen before. I mean, maybe you have. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But that is his first film. And I think all of his other films are a little bit better known than that one. But that that review of that movie is out right now and then for the next nine weeks assuming tenant holds its release date we'll be releasing uh, a new revisit of an old nolan movie all the way up to dunkirk and then of course we'll be reviewing tenant the weekend of july 17th if it comes out if it doesn't eh, maybe i'll edit maybe i'll edit this whole part of the podcast out i think you will yeah all right, yeah, yeah. So please check out the Nolan Countdown. We've had a lot of fun recording the some of the episodes so far, um, and we're excited for you all to hear them. So, uh, but until uh, next time, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.